Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 90. Whoa. Jamie 2 in A Feast for Crows. I'm one of your hosts, Chloe. You're, you're, okay. I'm dropping Fine. the internet. Who needs the internet? I agree. Who needs the internet? I am Eliana, though. Another one of your hosts. <sighs> Jamie 2 in A Feast for Crows, and I didn't realize I was going to be really into this chapter, Eliana. I didn't realize we were going to go ham, but... It turns out... Jamie's into some shit I'm into, you know? I think that we always knew that we would have in-depth discussions on Jamie. I just didn't realize it was going to be this chapter, right? I thought it was going to be... We definitely talked about him in some of those late Storm chapters. And, yeah. of course, the 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 Brienne chapters that he has in Storm. Like, a lot of those are super meaty. And I think those are some of the most iconic Jamie chapters. I didn't realize I was going to talk about him so much in this one. I mean, of course I am because it's literally his chapter. Mm-hmm. But, you know... And some of the other ones where he's at Riverrun, those are, like, I think, famous ones. But I think it really does boil down to a lot of the history. I think we are going to unfold a lot. I mean, something that's crazy that I've been noticing as I've been analyzing just different bits of Jamie is that right now, during A Feast for Crows, George is putting so much history into these chapters. And it's, you know, in a couple of years, the world of Ice and Fire is coming out, right? Handful of years here. Uh-huh. Um, handful. <laughs> uh And then Fire and Blood as well. And there's so much more history then. So I'm seeing a lot of these ideas kind of bloom in that gardening Mm -hmm. style that George has. I'm seeing him plant these seeds. I'm seeing Jamie talk about these Kingsguard members that are briefly expanded on when we get to the world of Ice and Fire or Fire and Blood. And I don't know. I like it. I like it a lot. It's also just, and we're going to talk about this in a bit, it's just a very well-structured book in my opinion. And I think Mm -hmm. that's part of why you and I love Feast so much. Yes. All the chapters mean something to each other. It all means something. I love when things mean yeah. something. There's a really <sighs> great relationship between the chapters and in Feast. So That's the problem with like Game of Thrones, right? It's like, it, it doesn't always mean something. But Song of Ice and Fire, it's like George carefully was like, listen, if we can't publish these books together at the same time, I want these chapters to be together and these chapters. Like, George is telling a story. So important. At first I thought you meant the first book, and I was like, damn, why would she throw shade at the first book no, like no, that? No. Then I realized you meant uh, the show that these were based oh, off of, and I think George has really improved upon what Game of Thrones wrote. <laughs> well, I regret to inform you all, we have a severely packed episode. Okay, I just kid. Like, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe you're here for this. We have such a packed episode. There are, god, what, like 20... Four pages of Google Notes we're going to talk about. I I found so much crap just thinking about it, sifting through it. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's just so much at the end. Jamie is just, he thinks, man. He thinks a lot. He does. You don't think it's that deep, but then it is. And I think everyone knows it kind of is. That's why he's one of the most interesting characters for a lot of fans, right? Yeah, he is. Well... Because of that, no emails or tweets a note this week. We're going to cruise through. Next week, we will read some of your emails and tweets. Be sure to send us some over at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, C-A-N-O-N, or at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. But first, Eliana, how about you kick off our lightning round today? Yeah, so we start off with Brienne 2 on the heels of Jamie 1. Brienne searches Duskendale for Sansa Stark, meeting two honorable men along the way. Maybe some less than honorable. 
honors a horse. Sansa won. All day and night, Sansa's dreams are haunted by song. The eerie turns into yet another nightmare. The Kraken's daughter. Asha prepares for her queen's mood. Cersei three. How could I have ever loved that wretched creature? He was your twin, your shadow, your other half. Once, perhaps, no longer. He's become a stranger to me. The Soiled Knight. Ari's Oakheart has sex. You know, the whole thing that he's not supposed <laughs> to do as a knight of the Kingsguard. Ariad Martell asks him, mm, why don't you just stop being a Kingsguard and become a Queensguard to this other Lannister child? That's really funny because I feel like that is exactly what gets put in Jamie's chapters. Why don't you stop being a Kingsguard and protect the other Lannister child? Huh. Brienne 3. Continuing her quest, Brienne runs into some other characters from her past and also a crab. Mr. Krabs? <laughs> Samuel 2. Sam's on a boat. I'm on a boat and it's going fast and I've got a nautical theme pass. Uh, do you not think of I'm on a boat? Am I the only one that always does? Like, I I do think of that and I realize I might have put that on, this on the wrong chapter. Listen. Oh wait, no, we can just call it Sam had just had sex when when mm, we get to that chapter. I like that. Like just that. all Lonely Island songs. Oh my god. I feel like that's what we should have listened to. What was it? Saturday? This Saturday we were on History of Westeros did a Ice and Firecon mm-hmm. benefit stream for Quiplash. We did Quiplash. And we were hysterical. It was very Cards Against Westeros. The Song of Ice and Fire themed. And that was a blast. But I feel like there were a lot of Lonely Island, a Song of Ice and Fire songs happening that night for sure. Yeah. They're fun. They're fun. It was a blast. Well, that brings us to Jamie. To in a feast for crows, to our overview. Tywin's body is paraded by Septon, Silent Sisters, and his loyal followers through the city. Will Jamie forge his own path, or will he follow the Lannister name? Conversations with Kevin, Lancel, Cersei, and Loras all seek to solidify this answer. That we don't get. We still don't get the answer. <laughs> we don't, but... So, as Chloe and I were saying, up top, Feast. Very interwoven book, and I think before jumping into this chapter, I wanted to do something a little different for a second, and talk about Brienne and Cersei's chapters, both of which are very close uh, in terms of distance, right, in terms of how they're structured within this book. And I understand, of course, that Feast and Dance were both split. They were originally one book, as you all know, but they were split due to length. George literally writes it in the beginning of these books and tells us all that. But I do think it's worth pointing out that the book was split for the most part geographically, right? He could have chosen to split it chronologically and he doesn't. He picks up some of that chronology in dance, of course, but I think that shows that there was quite some thought put into this decision and there's obviously a very deliberate structuring of Feast too, where we get a lot of these Brienne and Cersei POVs for the first time and their POVs are actually often following one another or right next to each other uh, but our first Jamie chapter in this book is actually directly followed by Brienne's second POV chapter, not the first, where she's actually on the heels of Cersei's chapters. And you end up with some really great ways that all of these stories compare and contrast with one another, especially as they themselves do, as Brienne and Jamie do, as knights that can never really fully live up to knighthood or honor due to different reasons. One of those being that both are living as kingslayers, one who actually did it with no regrets 
And the other is a legend as one, which affects her ability to navigate Westeros. And she regrets, of course, her inability to protect her king. So you get kind of those two sides of idealism uh, from Jamie and Brienne and how they go through the world. But just as Jamie is kind of running this farce of an investigation in King's Landing, as we <laughs> talked about last chapter, because, you know, he kind of already knows where, like, the missing half of his part of the wanted poster couple is. Uh, since, you know, he, like, freed his brother. Brienne's also running an investigation herself. Only she actually doesn't know where Sansa is, and you get this really interesting narrative effect where there's this irony in Rand's knight-errant story, because we as the reader know she's looking in all the wrong places because we do know where Sansa is, right? And I think that's put up against Jamie's investigation of him knowing where Tyrion, like, mm. ended up going, kinda, because he's like, yeah, I freed him, and I'm... I'm kind of the culprit, but at the same time, by the time Feast is published, we actually don't know where Tyrion is anymore as readers. So there's there's a kind of a difference there. And just as Jamie has a long talk with Long Waters about having royal blood, Brienne's chapter also has something very similar right after, where she's speaking with another person who claims to have royal blood through the Darks, who are another one of the many houses derived from House Darklin in Duskendale. And Brienne cannot escape at the same time her thoughts of Jamie. As she comes up against that legacy of House Starkland, which had seven sons, interestingly, that joined the King's Guard. And House Stark had, of course, one who was something of a Queen's Guard, uh, Jonquil Dark, the Scarlet Shadow, as we learn in Fire and Blood. They were also very closely tied to the Targaryens because, of course, they were King's, King's Guard and eventually kind of end up stabbing them in the back in a way in the defiance. But, you know, at least Jamie did it in the front, which I think <laughs> says something. I do think it does. And she... Brienne thinks of him so much in that second chapter following Jamie's first and is kind of comparing every fighter she comes against or like thinks of in her and, and remembers their journey together a lot. Yeah, I think there's a sharpening of wit there for Brienne especially, right? Jamie kind of drilled into her. Jamie was the Sandor for that, for, for the Sansa, right? For the girl that believed in songs and knighthood. Jamie drilled into her, hey, that's not all it is. Wow. We're in a real world right now. Beauty and the Beast, for sure. And there's a lot of framework that's laid out throughout this, not just on strong thematics, on, uh, I think, something you touched on very lightly, the Scarlet Shadow, Jean-Quil Dark, you know, being Queen Alisande's protector. I think that's something really bold through all of this discussion and that idea of legacy, because this chapter not only is framed in legacy when it comes to Tywin and what the Lannisters are about to do, each of them, but also legacy for someone like Brienne, as you discussed, and her seeing, I mean, she might not think about it, but Jean Quildark, this lady knight who was very, very bold in history, what will Brienne live up to, right? And that's kind of something we're going to explore as we get to the end of Jamie's chapter today. But the framework is laid well also for location. Uh, specifically mm -hmm. throughout this Jamie chapter, there are so many references and connections that are littered throughout about the defiance at Duskendale. It's kind of like we're slowly getting that backstory of Ares unfolded across these books in A Storm of Swords. Daenerys started to get kind of a little bit of family backstory not a lot in dance she starts to get a little more and then she's gone right right now we the reader are being told that and with this idea of legacy and what a legacy means and in the darklands case a destroyed legacy right like look at dantos hollard being all that's left of that 
segment of the Crownlands, Brienne chooses her own destiny in this chapter, and that kind of coincides with Jamie not understanding and kind of starting to think about what his is about to be. Absolutely. And I do want to point out, you know, he hasn't drilled into her yet. <laughs> that's, that's all you can say. He's drilled you into her. He's drilled into her. Yes, because it's like, not yet, not yet, I Chloe. I mean to. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll never make sex Jamie <gasps> Brienne jokes again. Oh, you will. I didn't I, even I, mean I'm just to saying, this time. But it's foreshadowing, I guess. You saying that. I think so. And I absolutely, with what you were saying of um, Duskendale being a big part of Jamie's chapter as well. I, at the same time, though, like, <laughs> what's going on in this book with Jamie and Brienne's, like, Brienne's memories of him, right? As she thinks back on it, she starts to see it in a more positive light. Jamie's risen in her esteem and continues to do so as she reflects on their time together. Whereas in Cersei's chapters, right, we see her reflecting on much more recent memories of her interactions with him, and he's very much falling in her esteem, comparably. Mm-hmm. Especially as he finally decides to like put his own search to an end by Cersei's third chapter, which is a little before this chapter, and we have a lot of Cersei and Jamie clashing and arguing in Cersei's chapters, also in this one of Jamie's, especially over Tommen's protection. And I mean maybe maybe that has to do with Jamie actually knowing what happened to Tyrion, who knows, whatever. But you also have Cersei beginning to see Jamie as worthless without his hand, and a lot of that is going to carry through into this chapter, which we'll discuss in a bit. Yeah, I love that not only is it Cersei's worthless without Jamie's hand, right? Like, she's like, Jamie, useless, yes. useless, piece of trash without his hand. But you get the commentary that Cersei says that a weak king is useless without a hand, and she says she's mm. not a weak queen. And he has to remind her, hey, our dad helped the king for a reason. Like, these people are needed. So Jamie's recognizing that Cersei's a dumbass. I mean, that's, like, the biggest part of this whole book, I guess, is that Jamie, like, wakes up, kind of, right? He, like, is like, oh, wow, Cersei does suck. She's, like, the worst parts of our dad. She's the person on the reality TV show who says, I'm a messy bitch and I'm not here to make friends. And she knows it. She's the girl in uh, Flavor of Love that answered the door and was like, I look like Beyonce. And Tiffany was like, Beyonce? Beyonce? I'm sorry, Beyonce. She like, it's a long thing. (laughs) Uh, We get this bit in Brienne 1 in Duskendale. They stood for the seven sons of Darklyn who had worn the white cloaks of the Kingsguard. No other house in the realm could claim as many. They were the glory of their house, and now they are a sign above an inn. So we got these uh, sigils of these men uh, of House Darklin, right, from Brienne 1. It's, that's all that's left of House Darklin. That's not even a house, right? It was Hollard was the next house that was going to take over, and then we know what happened to Dantos, obviously. Not good things. He dead. And, uh... <laughs> that's all you had to say, he dead. He dead. But there's, there's nothing going on there, right? Like, that's not... Really nothing going on in the Crownlands, as we've learned. The Crownlands have been very quiet throughout all of A Song of Ice and Fire, honestly, as far as the different kingdoms go. And other than the Blackwater. True. That was pretty big. Yeah, but that was, that was more a big like, deal. We did 100 episodes on it. We did literally 372 episodes, but none of them really mentioned the Crownlands. So the actual lords, I mean, they were there-ish. They fought-ish. And some of them bent the knee. Some of them didn't. Some of them did this, that. Eh. I don't know. 
Anyways, accounts vary. So when we talk about legacy throughout these chapters, I kind of felt like the outside of this inn having the shields of the seven sons who had served the king's guard with seven being a holy number and all that jazz uh, reminded me of a place we've been before in the books, which is the shield hall at Castle Black. Hmm, interesting. We have this passage back from the old John days, if you remember. Then, as now, when a knight took the black, tradition decreed he set aside his former arms and take up the plain black shield of the Brotherhood. The shields thus discarded would hang in the shield hall. Hundreds of knights meant hundreds of shields. We get a big descriptor of lots of shields with lots of animals and different sigils. They had adorned the shield hall walls, blazoned in more colors than any rainbow ever dreamed of. I thought that was interesting just because the rainbow seems to be associated with the gods, right? The the new gods, yeah. the seven. So yeah. interesting enough. Uh, the chapter that we're about to embark on is very much spent on Jamie critiquing and analyzing Kingsguard of the past from his own but different penal colony and what they stood for, wondering where his place really is in all of it. And I think that in Brienne's chapter is the shield hall, right? Like that right there is what was it all for? Why do we send our sons into this industrial machine? Why is it honorable to us? What does it mean? Uh, and Jamie is here in the middle searching and wondering, what does it all mean? What can I make it all mean? Right? Especially because for so long he's been like, shit, it didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. It was all a lie. <laughs> and he has to decide, of course if it's going to mean anything and what it means for him, what he himself means, his life. I mean... And I think you make a reference to this, that thing. What what was the, the line? Wasn't really it a, a line that made me sad? Wasn't there this quote in the books? Which line? All of them. Oh my god. I was like, all of them. <laughs> I think the line goes, whatever he chose, whatever he chose. I didn't cry this time, so... Yeah, she's gotten all her tears out. Let's start the but, chapter. Let's do well, it. Yeah, now now that we've gotten all that out of our system and set the set the stage, set the tone. <laughs> Lord Tywin Lannister had entered the city on a stallion, his enameled crimson armor polished and gleaming, bright with gems and gold work. He left it in a tall wagon draped with crimson banners, with six silent sisters riding attendants on his bones. There's so much just in this first passage alone that I want to tear apart. So I'm going to monologue like an evil <laughs> villain, like I, evil, like an evil villain, like I do for just a minute. Uh, the Silent Sisters really stand out here. They're so prominent in this passage, and they're kind of prominent as we move forward in Cersei's plot. Kind of a stain on it mm. when you really think about it. A Cersei seems to inherit all of these Tywin trials, right? And in a way, it kind of reminds me of how Ilan Payne loomed over Sansa's plot uh, as a silent foreboding. And they're actually pretty- Sound brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're actually pretty prominent before this for the Lannisters. If you remember way back when uh, the whole rain Tarbeck debacle that Tywin solved with brute force and violence- uh, Tywin actually sent all of the Tarbuck daughters to the Silent Sisters. So, in the last Cersei chapter, 
She complains about the Silent Sisters not knowing what Tywin had looked like and how he's smiling, which we learn from Maester Pycelle. It's literally his skin is drying, so his smile just goes creepily up. Uh, it's likely that the Silent Sisters did know Tywin because some of them might have been the Tarback daughters. The ages line right up. Oh, I think that's really interesting. I, I like realized like that. that. I was like, huh, I don't think anyone's talked about this ever. I mean, they di- the Silent Sisters didn't. They don't talk about shit, dog. No, but uh, Cersei is sitting there all pissed and all, but ah, they're not doing this. They're not. It's just like when she's complaining about how her maids are, you know, shrinking her clothes, but it's really like, girl, you're just drinking too much boxed wine. You're a little too curvy right now. Yeah, embrace it. Body positivity, Cersei. Yeah, come on, Cersei. You know, shaved head, who cares? This is something also playing maybe on something from Clash of Kings, though. Buckle up. I wonder if there's anything to make here about Ned's bones in this chapter, uh, surrounding that with what Catelyn experienced back in, what, Catelyn 5 in A Clash of Kings, because it took an incredible incredible amount of effort to get Ned's bones back, right? Like, Tywin just dies, Tyrion kills him, and overnight his bones are available, and the Silent Sisters are making him look all warriorly. But Cleos Frey brought these bones back. Uh, we have a couple passages from Clash of Kings. I'll shorten them a bit for us. Outside her chambers, she found Otheridi Swain waiting with two women clad in gray, their faces cowled, save for their eyes. Catelyn knew at once why they were here. Ned? The sisters lowered their gaze. Take me to him. They had laid him out on a trestle table and covered him with a banner. The white banner of House Stark with its gray direwolf sigil. I would look on him. Only the bones remain, my lady. I would look on him, she repeated. One of the silent sisters turned down the banner. Bones, Catelyn thought. This is not Ned. This is not the man I love, the father of my children. His hands were clasped over his chest, skeletal fingers curled about the hilt of some long sword, but they were not Ned's hands, so strong, so full of life. They dressed the bones in Ned's surcoat, the fine white velvet with the direwolf badge over the heart, but nothing remained of the warm flesh that had pillowed her head so many nights, the arms that had held her. The head had rejoined the body with fine silver wire, but one skull looks much like another, and in those empty hollows she found no trace of her lord's dark gray eyes, eyes that could be soft as a fog or hard as a stone. They gave his eyes to crows, she remembered. Catelyn turned away. That is not his sword. This narrates the chapter in kind of a different fashion, right? The the plots are similar Jamie thinks Tywin entered in a huge, beautiful display of grandeur, but his his horse actually shit very publicly on the ground when Tywin came into the kingdom, right? And when Tywin left the kingdom, you know, when he died, he shit. Like, that. that's Tywin. Like, <laughs> the joke is that it's yeah. not that deep. They're both framed as very tragic chapters in very different ways. By the end of A Storm of Swords, a bunch of the good guys die, but... Also, the bad guys are killed by what we, the readers, kind of associated as a good guy. Someone we were kind of rooting for, hoping he would do good things and go far. Like, yes, Tywin is a fuck. And yes, he totally deserved it, for the record. Shay didn't. But anyways, uh, watching the Lannisters' first chapters in A Feast for Crows, there's this harsh or stark 
contrast, you might mm. want to say, between uh, Arya and Sansa. Sansa 1 opens in A Feast for Crows with the story about when she was a little girl, when a singer stayed with them at Winterfell, and that he was old and he wasn't really beautiful, but he sang of knights and ladies fair, and Sansa cried, and Eddard was like, Sansa, honey, I have to let him go. We can't, like, kidnap the guy. Best story ever. Please go check that chapter out. We've covered it. But Arya's chapter opens with her frustrated, upset, her home's gone, her parents are dead, everyone's dead but Jon Snow, and she keeps telling the ship captain she wants to go to the wall, but he won't take her. The Starks don't get their own funeral service, gilded by the gods, uh, with crystal crowns and people praying and crying in the streets. Arya and Sansa actually do grieving where Cersei and Jaime really don't seem to. Arya and Sansa's home is smashed and burnt, but they're able to build and hope. Tywin's legacy has shown that he has built up this giant palace with titles for them all to have, but when he's gone, none of them care. They don't grieve for him, for who he was. They're realizing that he's ruined their lives. Yeah, and they're they're only starting to really come to grips with that right now. And they're doing it in awful ways, right? Like, Cersei's not. Right, and I think that's absolutely understandable, and I think that's something that I love about the way this is written. That's so realistic, right? To- to- Jamie doesn't understand why he's not grieving. Yeah. He- because Tywin's damaged them so much. Tyrion thinks he's not grieving, but in a way he very much is. Cersei's burying those emotions. They are just so damaged, and I think another way that that kind of manifests with imagery is, you know, I- like that you called out how Tywin's body, they're all like, well, that doesn't look like him at all, even though it is actually his body there, right? And it's smiling, and they're like, that's not his likeness. Whereas uh, when Ned passes, right, one of the first things that Maester Lewin says when he tells Bran is, we must find someone who knew his likeness, because they're getting ready now to recreate him as one of the statues to go in the crypts of Winterfell. And mm. They're, they're having someone who knows him to do that honor, whereas here with the Silent Sisters, they're kind of strangers, both literally and figuratively in terms of the, the Seven, but also, as you said, they... They might not be. <laughs> probably don't love Tywin in the way that maybe a stonemason from the North would love Ned and that legacy. It turns out that, like, maybe if you treated people better, they might treat you better in death, too. You know, you never know. <laughs> you never know. And you'll be dead, so who cares? As Shay told Tyrion, she's like, you're not going to know if I cry for you or not. It does feel like a Scrooge chapter, right? Like, mm. this is the ghost of Tywin's future. Like, this is what you get, Tywin. This is your legacy. It's on fire. There's flames up and down it. This is what you get. Yeah, and I think that's a great tie-in to how this chapter ends with Jamie talking about legacy. We'll get there. But first, we gotta get through Tywin's funeral procession. Uh, they went through the Gate of the Gods with 15 knights surrounding his wagon and the High Lords of the Westerlands following as well. Yes, and Jamie sees a bunch of different sigils. We're gonna talk about them right now. He sees boars, which are Craycall, Badgers, Leiden of Deep Den, Beetles, Betley, Green Arrow, Sarsfield, Red Ox, Prester of Feast Fires. Crossed halberds, which are Yarwick, you might remember Othel Yarwick from The Watch. Cross spears, the stack spears. A tree cat, which is Myatt. A strawberry, Turnberry. A maunch, Hamel. 
Four Sombers, Kennings of Case, which I really only know these because of CK2. I just want you to know. <laughs> Are you sure it's not pronouncing? Yeah. Oh my god. It's like a tree cat. Anyways, also, there's a Green Arrow reference. Uh, George has a couple of these. There's like a blue beetle in one of the other yes. chapters or something later. But anyway. Comic nerd. Uh, Nerds. Who would do that? Who would be a nerd? Not us. There are a couple of houses that kind of noteworthy. Some of these are complete placeholders, and we're going to see that a lot. You can definitely feel George gardening some of this Westerland stuff. Like, ah, let's just give these ones a name. And there's these guys. You know Elio and Linda came up to him, and they're like, George, we have to fill a whole section in the world of ice and fire. And he's like, <laughs> rolling the dice! Uh, but some of them stuck, and the Craig Halls have a good amount of history that are embedded. You might remember them from the phrase. We have Hostine, Lythine, Simon, Danwell, Merritt, Jeremy, and Raymond Frey, and they all come from a Craig Hall mother, which is Amory. Amory is Little Walder's grandmother, if you remember that little fucker. And he uses her sigil in his quartered shield because it's kind of that influential. Uh, before the rebellion, the Martells stopped at Crake Hall when they were searching for a betrothal for their kids. And of course, currently, Shira Crake Hall is married to Damian Lannister, cousin to the Lannister fam. He's a, uh, like, second Davin. You know what I mean? He's like the other Davin. Mm, yeah. I have a question. Is uh, Amory Crake Hall the one that Amory Frey, a.k.a. is named after? Amory's named after? Yes, I think so. Cool. I really do think so. And she's, like, sassy. We're going to talk about her later in this yeah. book actually so i love her i do too she's I very sassy she is uh she's all just like middle fingers up we have the turnberries we only know one person from the turnberry family that's alive right now which is sir lambert who is one of the accused that hangs out with marjorie by the book's end and this is a good one you're gonna like this one of sarah targaryen in fire and blood yeah. jaharis and alisand's daughter her companion was a Turnberry, Alice Turnberry, and she got pregnant out of wedlock and moved to the Vale and got married off to Lord Pryor. Hmm. Very Arya vibes. That seems like one of those... Yeah, it also seems like one of those things where George was like, this would have been interesting once in my story, but I can't make it work. Yeah, I mean, the idea of, like, him being a companion to a queen or, like, a, a eventual queen and, you know, getting pregnant. It sounds very Sarah Targaryen, so... He had ideas. He had ideas. This is one that I want to know more about House Kenning, and I'm sure there's more to read. I'm sure I could have looked it up, but they were originally an ironborn house, if you can call them a house, I guess, that took over Case, and they became ingratiated in the Westerlands and uh, mm. just kind of like lived there and existed. I'd love to know that shit in full, right? Like, Dalton Greyjoy apparently took a case as, like, a salt wife, I want to say. I'd have to look at the book again. It, it was interesting to me. I was like, oh, that's weird that the Iron... And it makes sense. The Iron Islanders have been able to come a little east, right? Inch their way yeah, over. Some of but them. they just kind of stuck. Like, everyone just accepted them as a lord of the Westerlands. Hmm. They're like the Manderleys of the Westerlands. A bit. Maybe. I don't know. Hmm. But yeah, that is interesting. I didn't really know much about House Kenning Case. Me either. Casening. Case. Nope. And, yep. And so one of the ones that uh, are mentioned here, there's a house that's 
got a sigil called a manch. Mm. And I had to look that up. I was like, what the fuck is a manch? And apparently it's derived from like a French word and it's basically like a woman's detachable sleeve. But it's heraldry. And you would think it was for cool costume changes, but no, it's to give to boys. Hmm. It's like a token and things. So. And they don't deserve things. <laughs> I mean, a, they're like, here, have a sleeve. Cover yourself. <sighs> We have some high lords that are attending this funeral, as I mentioned. Lord Brax, Unicorn Man. Lord Jast, they attend. Lord Bainfort, Lord Plum, Lord Prester, Lord Moreland, all in their finest house colors, but they each wear a crimson silk cloak to honor Tywin, the man he was. After the lords come, crossbowmen and men-at-arms also come, and they're in crimson as well. And Jamie's like, well, this sucks, because I'm wearing white. You should never wear white to a wedding. <sighs> you mean a funeral? Same thing. Yeah, I do find that interesting. I kind of wonder if we're ever going to see John feel this way mm. when we see him later uh, with his family, uh, the Starks. And... It speaks to me about how much camaraderie the Night's Watch has versus versus the Kingsguard, because the Kingsguard are so few and so esteemed that everyone knows their name, whereas with the Night's Watch, you get to have that anonymity to an extent, like what they go through forges those familial bonds between them with John and Sam, of course, being some of those top of mind examples of like, we're brothers now. And, you know, John's like, yeah, I wear black now, we're part of the Night's Watch, this is my family, for and for the Kingsguard, right? As we see with House Starkland's claim to fame, part of it is that joining the Kingsguard is very much an honor individually and to your family versus how sometimes it's kind of a disgrace to join the Night's Watch except for in the North where they're like, yeah, this is still cool. Uh, so it's kind of no wonder that Jamie's having this identity mm-hmm. crisis right now. Yeah, I mean, for Tywin, we know that was the biggest, most shameful thing in the world. For Jamie, he thought True. he was doing the right thing. He was like, everyone still knows you're a Lannister. Yeah. And it's not like his relatives do much to help, especially throughout this book. I'm talking Jenna, etc. But Kevin, who's here right now, does not do much to help. He's like, ah, Lord Commander, when he addresses him. And he's like, what does her grace want? Jamie is here to grieve-ish, like the rest of them. And they start going back and forth, tension high. Jamie informs Kevin of the differences between Jamie and Cersei, just in case he forgot. You know, he's like, oh, just in case you forgot, I am a different person. Uh, The conversation then turns to Tommen, and Jamie says, Balin Swan is currently defending him. He's a good and valiant knight, uncle. And Kevin's like, hmm, kind of being a dick. He's like, interesting. Well, that didn't have to always be said back in the day. You know, you didn't have to boast (laughs) about what a good knight he was. He was just supposed to be one. It's his job. And Jamie's like about to respond. He's like, no, no. But in his head. He's like, let me pick a new seven. I would pick new, better people. And he's like, it wouldn't matter because I'm the Kingslayer. I have no honor. No one will respect me. And he lets it go as he didn't come here to argue. He really didn't. He came here in peace. And we'll come back to some of what Kevin says later with some of what Jamie says towards the end of this chapter. But there is an interesting contrast once more between how this goes with John versus Jamie. Because I think John has like a similar problem, right? Of being unable to choose his brothers. We've discussed this before. Same as Jamie. Meaning both uh, their biological brothers mm. or for John, 
Ish. who he perceives as his biological brothers or within their like own military order thing. But the Night's Watch is somewhere that people go to have their slate wiped clean. Whereas the King's Guard is somewhere that you go to like have everyone fucking remember you and your last name and your legacy follows you. And I mean, granted, a lot of Jamie's was established during his time as a King's Guard, so it's a little different. But like, it it, it becomes a big problem for him, of course, because Jamie always didn't doesn't always demand the respect that he thinks he should as a Lord Commander, partially because of his past as a Kingslayer. He does do it sometimes, as we saw in some of his Storm chapters, where he's like, everyone shut the fuck up, listen to me, do as I say, not as I did. Uh, whereas John demands it despite his past and the accusations leveled against him of betraying the Night's Watch because he was, you know, ultimately successful in saving the wall against this giant invasion. And John has already had to learn to move past shame. Because he carried this shame that was put on him unjustly for being a bastard. No fault of his own, right? And Jamie's still wrestling with this idea of shame because it was his own actions. And that's what kind of got him here. It makes me wonder where these actions are going to take Jamie for his endgame and vice versa for John. Because when you think about it, Mm -hmm. yes, John's moved past that shame. But, like, Jamie has to make decisions Someday John's going to have to make decisions, too. And that's just an interesting comparison. Uh, Jamie does come up with a reasoning, right, in, in approaching his uncle. He, in his head, he's like, all right, I got this. And out loud, he's like, I want you to make up with Cersei, Kevin. It is only helping the enemies of our house. He's trying really hard to be, like, political and, like, open-handed and, like, listen, we're only hurting ourselves right now. Not wrong, as we know, because there's Varys who exists out there just setting off ravens. He's like, here you go, Illyrio. Get ready. It's all going down. Kevin really just wants to go home, right? Like He's like, I just want to go to Derry with Lancel, help my son build this castle back up, help him rule, see him wed Gatehouse Amy. Lancel is behind them about 10 yards. He looks like a ghost himself, and... Jamie looks at him and he feels his phantom fingers twitch. And we get that iteration of the phrase, that tick that is haunting him. She's been fucking Lancel and Osmond Kettleblack and Moonboy for all I know. Yeah, Jamie's recent attempts at communicating with Lancel, they've all gone poorly as he was never alone. I think that was probably intended by Lancel. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Attended by Kevin or by a septum. People know. People aren't that dumb. Lancel's not dumb. He thinks Tyrion must have been lying to him, though, and that he meant to wound him. Kinda. Jamie asks if Kevin will remain at Derry once Lancel's wed, and Kevin's like, like, yeah, I mean to for a time, unless, you know, he goes and helps relieve the salt pans for Cersei, where Sandra Clegane is said to be raiding. We have this quote. Jamie had heard about salt pans. By now, half the realm had heard. The raid had been exceptionally savage. Women raped and mutilated, children butchered in their mother's arms, half the town put to the torch. Jamie goes on to say that Randall Tarly can handle all of that, as he's out there in Maidenpool, and he'd rather his uncle move toward Riverrun, but... But Kevin says that Davin has things under control, does he, as Warden of the West. Does he? I'm just, I'm just saying... Does he? Yeah, agreed. Uh, so this is another one of those nods, I think, towards uh, Brand's storyline, where in her chapter 
before this one. She's actually just encountered Randall Charlie again and is at Maidenpool. And marveling at how different it is since she and Jamie last went through here through, I guess, Randall Charlie's efforts. But I don't know. I, I don't want to give Randall any credit for anything because I Ever. hate Randall Charlie and he sucks. Never forgive, never forget. So that's all. Jamie then, like, Melisandre's Kevin and is like, daggers in the dark, Nuncle. Keep your swords around you. And Kevin's like, excuse me, is that a threat? And Jamie's like, whoa, <laughs> no, 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 I love you very much. You're very cool. And I think you're super chill. Uh, I'm just like, Sandra Clegane's dangerous, sir. Kevin reminds him, Jamie, I am old. I was hanging robbers and outlaws while you were busy, like, shitting yourself. <laughs> You get this line of, I'd not like to go off and face Clegane and Dondarrion by myself, if that is what you fear, sir. Not every Lannister is a fool for gold. Ooh, Jamie's like, is this a subtweet? Uh, Jamie reminds him of the many lords that are near them, right now, riding, that would be competent in dealing with outlaws, but none of them would make a good king's hand like him. Kevin, of course, argues. He says, hey, Cersei knows my terms. They haven't changed. And you should tell her that next time you're in her bedchamber. Ooh. That's not even a subtweet. That's straight up quote tweet or a reply. That's an aggressive QRT. That's a quote retweet. Uh, Kevin? I guess it's not a quote because he's not telling everyone. He doesn't want everyone to know about his house. I mean, y'all know other people heard it though, right? That's true. That's true. He puts his heels in his courser, gallops ahead, putting an abrupt end to the conversation, and Jamie lets him go, and he, his sword hand actually twitches, right? His missing sword hand, a phantom twitch, and he thinks he had hoped against hope that Cersei had somehow misunderstood, but plainly that was wrong. Yes, Kevin knows that they're fucking, and Jamie worries. He's like, Cersei's gonna have Kevin killed, because she cray-cray, and... Kevin knows way too much, and then he's like, you know what, maybe Cersei's hoping Sandor's gonna cut him down like we were just talking about. Yeah, I like how Kevin doubles down on that, and you know, this is not the first time that a character has proposed something like this as an outcome of sending someone to go deal with someone else. As we pointed out in Jamie's last chapter and how it ends with his discussion with Cersei regarding Mace Tyrell. Yeah, and Jamie actually finally sees a window of opportunity to go shoot the shit with Lancel, his favorite cousin. And rides over to him. He congratulates him on his marriage, sorrowful that he cannot attend, and says, oh, You know, I'm sad to miss the betting. Although, you know, good thing Amory will likely be able to guide you because it's her second marriage. Ouch. Like, I don't know. I couldn't tell if Jamie felt like he was being sincere here or not, but some coof, Jamie. Uh, some lords are in the background and kind of laughing about this. And I think Jamie is really overall trying to feel out Lancel here, right? Like, understand, what's he thinking? There are septins that are giving him disapproving looks, and Lancel is squirming in his saddle. Lancel's like, mm -hmm. I know enough to do my duty as a husband, thank you very much. And Jamie's like, oh, enough, that's exactly what a woman wants on her wedding night in her bed. And we get this line where Lancel's blushing, and he says... I pray for you, cousin, and for her grace, the queen. May the crone lead her to wisdom and the warrior defend her. Why would Cersei need the warrior? She has me. Classic. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Interesting choice of words, Jamie. And I guess he's waiting for Lancel to be like, I've had sex before. 
Mm-hmm. For proof. And yeah, to confirm it, but Lancel's Lancel. not like that, right? Anymore. Jamie turns his horse and off he fucks, deciding Tyrion has to be lying. Cersei would rather have fucked Robert's corpse before Lancel. Oh, Jamie. Hmm. Yeah. Special boy. I don't boy. think he really sees also. I don't think he really also sees that, like, part of it, the appeal of Lancel to Cersei was, like, he was, like, kind of looked like Jamie. It's really flattering if you think about it. Really flattering. <laughs> really flattering. Anyway, a few chapters ago, Lancel actually was trying to tell Cersei that he loves her, but she shushed him. And, you know, I, I, along with really flattering, I stand by this other bad take of... The fact that Jamie and Cersei never defined the relationship, right? I honestly don't see why Jamie thought he and his twin sister were exclusive. I kind of think that, like, what's wild to me, you know, part of Tyrion's speech that Jamie's fixated on as a falsehood that he's like, no, that's definitely a lie. And it, it, it kind of reveals to us what matters more to Jamie, right? Because, like, Tyrion said a bunch of shit just to hurt Jamie in that moment. And the only big lie was the one about killing Joffrey. I think that the Moon Boy thing was just rhetoric. Yeah. I don't count it. Jamie, on the other hand, is so much more hurt about the part regarding Cersei. And I think it makes sense considering all he gave up, thinking that this was like their great romance. But I mean, same as he was a young knight, right? Chasing glory in heroes and songs. He romanticized the what he had with Cersei. And I think that's a very entirely human thing to do. It's a thing that teenagers do. And it's very relatable. I just, you know, it's just a lot easier for most people when it's not your twin sister. Yeah. To to romanticize things. I It's definitely just, adding a I, layer of complexity to it all. That's for sure. It and does. it's it's sad, right? Because he's never been allowed to love in general. Like, it's not that Jamie isn't allowed to love as a Kingsguard, it's that before he was a Kingsguard, he was also taught by his father that love is wrong and that he's not allowed to love, and the only love he ever remembers feeling besides the vague hugs he can almost remember from Joanna are Cersei. And that's not love, that's poison, and it'll kill you all the same. And the one that he had with Tyrion, and it killed their dad all the same. Everything's made up and the points don't matter in the Westerlands is what I'm trying to say. No, I agree. And I think it, it's sad, right? Like, It is sad, man. It is sad. He doesn't have any models for what healthy love looks like. And that's why he can't recognize to an extent. He's like, why do I think about Brienne when I think about the Silk Street? But And I'm not like, I would never uh, promote Tywin, obviously. But that's why they say about no. Tywin, like, you know, Lady Joanna was it for him. That was that was what he had. Yeah, it, and it is sad because it sounds like he couldn't even love his kids. Yeah. And all that was left of her because he probably looked at them all the time and all he saw was Joanna in them. I almost wonder if when Joanna was gone, Tywin isolated his kids so much, right? Like, Joanna was trying to uh, foster more of those mm -hmm. alliances with some of the other houses. And as we know, that's kind of women's work in Westeros, yes. right? That some of that alliance building, we see it with the Tyrells very heavily. We're going to see it in, alluded to a bit in here and Cersei's chapters. Is that part of why Jamie was like, this is yes. love, right? With my twin sister? Because he didn't know what it was to have other connections with people. Yeah. Isolated. Like you said, that's perfect. 
Um, not for them, but it's a good observation. They were isolated. And it's a lot like Ned. It's a lot what happened with Ned. Ned didn't let mm. Rob marry out. Rob was 15 and leading a rebellion because Ned had died at the hands of the Lannisters. But Ned didn't have lords that were 100% sewn to the cause marrying just like he had when he was forced to marry Catelyn. Not that it wasn't yeah. like, you know, an easy force, but... yeah. Anyway, right now the streets of King's Landing are pretty empty as Jamie comes back to the Red Keep. Garland had taken half of the Tyrell strength back to Highgarden, and Allery and Elena went as well. The rest went to Storm's End with Mace Tyrell, per Jamie and Cersei's plans in his previous chapter. Also, is second time the charm yeah. for Mace Tyrell and Storm's <laughs> End. No, it is not. In case you're wondering. Uh, anyway. The army is broken down much further. There are 2,000 Lannister soldiers mounted outside the city walls, waiting for the Red Wine fleet so they can go siege Stannis' small amount of men at Dragonstone. The Westermen all go back to their families after this to rebuild and to grow new harvest. This is their very last chance before winter comes to get food. Cersei brings Tommen around to their camps before they march home letting the lords of the Westerlands cheer him, and we get this passage from Jamie, and I thought it felt very bittersweet. She had never looked more beautiful than she did that day, with a smile on her lips and the autumn sunlight shining on her golden hair. Whatever else one might say about his sister, she did know how to make men love her when she cared to try. Damn. Well, that's the whole book, so... <laughs> that's sad. Uh, Jamie comes upon men at the gates who are practicing with a lance, something he no longer could do unless he practiced with his left. He stops to watch Talad the Tall lose his mount, and Strongbore cracking his shield, he watches Kenos of Case, Dermot of the Ringwood, Lambert Turnberry, all take their turns, and John Bentley, Humphrey Swift, and Alan Staxpear, as well as Red Ronnet Connington, Boo. breaks his lance clean. Boo. Sorry, I just thought booing was important at Red Ron at Connington. Um, Kenos of Case is named actually in real life after one of George R. R. Martin's hmm. really good friends. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's uh, he names him in several books, and uh, it's cute. It's cute. I like it. A uh, couple other ideas. Dermot, Benton, Anita, Joffrey, if you remember him, he originally fought for Stannis, and... A few of these men actually end up heading out with Jamie to the Riverlands, but we'll definitely get there as we move along. For now, Loris puts these men to shame. Jamie reflects that jousting was 75% horsemanship, and Loris rides well. He handles the lance like it came out of the womb in his hand, which Jamie kind of describes. Ah, that's why Allery looks like she does, because, you know, her child represented a lance that came out of the womb. Uh, but... He has the balance of a cat, and I think this is a great little piece of evidence you could put towards Liana mm -hmm. as Knight of the Laughing Tree. Believe it or not, this mm -hmm. and the booming Lord's voice. Liana was half a horse herself, as we hear. If jousting is 75% horsemanship, and the lance is attached to the arm, and they have a booming voice, I mean, that is... You win every time. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I do think this is pointing towards that, absolutely. Jamie does think that it's a shame that he'd never have a chance to prove himself against Loris again, and I, once again, I'm going to compare this to John, who no longer feels he can practice sparring with the men in the yard mm -hmm. at the Night's Watch. Different reasons and circumstances, of course, but also, 
gonna come back to this in a bit later. Does it seem like Jamie's starting to kind of view Loras like a younger brother or son? <sighs> Definitely feels very close to home. Like, possibly like a son. Like, he's trying to be like a core and ha- Oh, I guess he is missing a hand. Whatever. Anyways, half hand to, to Loras. Mm-hmm. Anyway... One more thing, I don't know that it means that much on a deeper level, but it is an interesting thing to think about that Jamie finds so much of himself, who is a Kingsguard of Robert, reflected in some of the Kingsguard of Robert's younger brother, Renly. That's a great call out. I didn't think about that. Hmm. It's in different ways, of course, right? Between Brienne and, and Loras, but... Yeah, and that's all. we are reminded of a... Uh of happier days when it comes to Jamie very soon. He leaves this yard and he thinks he left the whole men to their sport. Hmm. Hmm. That's a bummer. He gets into Mager's holdfast and arrives at Cersei's solar. She's drunk. Tom and Tyena and Pycelle are there. They're laughing at some joke. Jamie shoves in right at the laughter and asks, yo, what did I miss? What's so funny? Taina is kind of courteous. She's like, uh, your brave brother has returned, Cersei. And Cersei says most of him. Damn. <sighs> Harsh. I-, I can feel. That's a lot. That. The heat of that, like, interaction. Like, my blood is boiling. He's not a part of her world. He's not a part of her life. He's an outsider. That's what that was. Yeah, he's not allowed this lunch table anymore. You can't sit with us! That's actually kind of this feeling. That's actually this feeling. Jamie's like, on Wednesdays, we wear white. <laughs> actually, though, we have uh, this line of, of late, Cersei always seemed to have a flagon of wine to hand. She, who had once scorned Robert Baratheon for his drinking, he misliked that, but these days, he seemed to mislike everything his sister did. Hmm. A, hmm. finally. B, we won't go into this much now because we have some plans for Patreon this month with Mir, but the Tyena scene is literally Robert. Like, it's Robert fucking Cersei, but it's Cersei fucking Tyena. Yeah, I didn't Cersei's channeling that, but again, we gotta save some content for some of yes. our other stuff. Not also, only for the, hey, wait, the Mir episode, but also Cersei's episodes. So, besides how horrible Robert was to Cersei, I find that he's kind of this fascinating figure within Cersei and Jamie's relationship where it seems like they kind of just projected their relationship problems onto him. They were like, it seems kind of like they were thinking, oh, if Robert weren't here, everything would be dandy, right? But then it turns like, out he's the- gone and things suck. Yeah, right? Like, as in one of these previous chapters when Cersei's thinking that, like, was all of Jamie's wit in his fighting hand and thinks, like, I mean, Robert was like that. And then... While here, Jamie's finding fault in Cersei's drinking and is comparing it to Robert. And yeah, like, Robert's fucking god. And as Jamie points out to Cersei, he's, when he's like, oh, Robert's gone, let's just make ourselves official. Uh, Cersei's like, no, why would we do that? And the cracks in their relationship are starting to show without Robert to just, like, put everything on. It's kind of funny that before it was Robert that dictated their relationship, right? But now it turns out that Cersei actually dictates their relationship. It wasn't Robert, it was Cersei this entire time. And that's what Jamie's uncomfortable with. It's not on his terms yeah. anymore. Before it was Robert it who might could not blame. Have ever, you know what I it mean? It wasn't, it wasn't. Yeah. 
There, I can't figure out. I don't know that it was on either of their terms. No. There was a weird. Cersei. They have a weird. Guarded her cunt like the gold of Casterly Rock. Oh so, um, so Cersei commands Pycelle, who is looking extremely uncomfortable, to tell Jamie what he told them. Pycelle tells them Lady Tanda of Stokeworth had her bastard child, and Cersei pops back in because she actually did not want Pycelle to tell the story. This moment's really about Cersei, not about Pycelle. So she's like, what do you think they named the child, Jamie?" And Jamie's like, well, I think they originally said Tywin. She's like, yeah, you're right, but actually I banned that because I'm powerful. And it turns out that Bronn, Lolis's husband, actually chose the name. Lolis had... Little choice in the matter, though, Pycelle makes sure to add. And Jamie, of course, already knows. And he's like, oh, so it's Tyrion. And he can't help but laugh. <laughs> and he makes a joke saying Cersei Weird. should have checked Lollys's womb for Tyrion the entire time since she's been looking. And Tyene is like, oh, maybe the bastard resembles Tyrion in deformity or noselessness. Cersei declares to Tommen, who, yes, by the way, is still here on a school night, that they shall have to send the baby boy a gift. Of course, a gift in Cersei's eyes are a little different than a gift in Tommen's eyes. Tommen suggests a kitten. Love you, Tommen. Sweet boy. And mm-hmm. I don't know. It's so toxic. Like, Cersei has Tommen here. Jamie wouldn't have been worse to leave Tommen with ever. Cersei's out here getting bombed and plotting murder and shit and patting Tom and being like, be a good king, ignore mommy's plotting. You know, it's a it's a bummer. It's sad to watch. Tyena suggests yeah. a lion cub instead of a kitten, and she kind of smirks, and Jamie notices the smirk, knowing that, like, she's not talking about a cute lion cub. No, she's not. And it's kind of a cringy joke. As someone who makes cringy jokes and is an expert in them. <sighs> but not in a fun way. Cersei says she has just the idea. Jamie knew the look in his sister's eyes. He had seen it before, most recently in the night of Tommen's wedding, when she burned the tower of the hand. The green light of the wildfire had bathed the face of the watchers, so they looked like nothing so much as rotten corpses, a pack of gleeful ghouls, but some of the corpses were prettier than others. Even in the baleful glow, Cersei had been beautiful to look upon. She'd stood with one hand on her breast, her lips parted, her green eyes shining. She is crying, Jamie had realized, but whether it was from grief or ecstasy, he could not have said. The sight had filled him with disquiet, reminding him of Ares Targaryen and the way a burning would arouse him. That discomfort and that split for Jamie from Cersei is like, mm, I feel it. Do you feel it? It's a coming. Yeah. They, they feel it on both ends, but a little differently, obviously. Yeah. And this flashback, actually, just a few days ago, launches Jamie into a full flashback remembering Ares and Rayella. Mm-hmm. They slept apart in the rebellion towards the end and avoided each other during waking hours. But if Ares burnt someone, he would rape Rayella that night. And Jamie remembers it. He mm-hmm. remembers when Ares burnt Chelstead, his hand. And how John Derry and Jamie were standing guard outside the door. And through the door, they hear Rayella cry that she was being hurt by Ares. But Jamie pipes up and says, aren't we sworn to protect her too? And Derry responds, not from him. Jamie thinks that had been worse than Chelstead screaming. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Defend the innocent, protect the weak. His first charge uh, after becoming Kingsguard was to go spend time with Rail and her kids. Imagine. Wrapped up in those crimson cloaks that Jamie can't wear right now. There yeah, you go. Is this shame? There's the crimson cloaks that the Western Lords were all wearing. And Jamie is standing there in white. The last time Jamie sees Rayella, uh, she's climbing into her wheelhouse to depart for Dragonstone. The rumors were swirling around, of course, that she looked like she had been savaged by a beast, clawed up on her thighs and chewed up breasts. A crowned beast, Jamie knew. You know, this isn't exact, but it does remind me a little bit of Cersei and Robert, right? That he was vicious mm-hmm. and wild when he was drunk. And, I mean, we understand that part of what I think doesn't sit well with me with Jamie's chapters, especially towards the beginning of Storm, is he doesn't think of Cersei in these same terms as Rayla. Mm-hmm. He thinks of it as Robert taking something that's his. Yeah, that's my problem, too. And I think that's something that... uh continues to also disquiet me. By Ares's end, though, his paranoia had been at its peak, and no blades were allowed near him, of course. His hair was long, tangled, gross. His arms and legs were covered in scabs because he would cut himself on the throne constantly. Let him be king over charred bones and cooked meat, Jamie remembered, studying his sister's smile. Let him be the king of ashes. Ooh, gruesome. I guess Ares was saying that interestingly about Robert, right? Especially, so you kind of get twofold things here, right? Cersei being compared to Robert, and then Jamie wondering, is she comparable to Ares? And against the backdrop, once again, like, of uh, Brienne's chapters, right? She was so recently at Duskendale, and that's one of the places that many cite as Ares' breaking point, where he becomes this person. And I think we've addressed this before a bit. This memory of Jamie regarding Rayella, right? It's very formative for his philosophy on what's wrong with the Kingsguard, and of course his anxieties about serving a very ruthless ruler, and he fears that Cersei is becoming one, as we can see. Like, so much of Jamie and who he was in A Storm of Swords goes back to his past trauma, especially his helplessness in it, and I think that's a very tied to why he loved being on the battlefield, at least there on the battlefield. He knew what he was doing, and he knew that he could do something about it. It's like his escapism with the things that he couldn't change. It's simple out there, right? And it's why he doesn't feel regret about killing Ares. He was finally able to actually fucking do something about this man that he saw hurting people like Rickard Stark, Brandon, Rayella, and Almost all of King's Landing. Uh, Chalstead cited a, a moment ago. And the whole time he's like had to stand aside as Ares does all this stuff. But ever since then, because of the stories about Jamie as a Kingslayer and because of his sister and his family, right? They had to kind of acquiesce to Robert's power. And Jamie felt like he couldn't do anything. So I, I, I think it's really interesting that. We don't have Jamie as a King's Guard or Lord Commander with Joffrey as a king, right? He's not in King's Landing during that time, and I think that's very significant in terms of how the story is structured. Because, you know, you put your characters in certain situations to see how they'll react, right? Because I think Jamie would have had very much the same frustrations that he had with Ares with Joffrey, his own son, as a king. And I think that's structurally why we get his point of view here at this point in the story with a Lannister regime and a weaker king 
than Joffrey. And of course, Jamie now is Lord Commander because he can finally make those changes that he wants. In a way, he's kind of following in the footsteps of one of his heroes, Rhaegar, and living up to those promises. And I think that's why when he gets back, right, as we've said, he's trying to consolidate Mianjin and being like, hey, you gotta run shit by me before you go around hitting little girls or just murdering random people. He's trying to right the wrongs of when he was powerless to make change or felt powerless uh, to change things during Ares's reign and even Robert's. But you can see that anxiety that he has with Cersei. And in a way, it kind of reminds me of Jojen's line of if love and hate can mate. And to be fair, this happens in a lot of breakups. Those, those two emotions being very wrapped up in one another, one following the other, and a lot of non-ancestral relationships. That's like a normal <laughs> thing that happens for many people in breakups. Right. And I think... And I think this one, though, has that added layer of both uh, twincest. And if Cersei is starting to mirror a different kind of hatred within Jamie's life, that, that old king that he hated so much and feared so much that Jamie felt compelled to stop him. Yeah, and it's that question of, is he going to stop this one? Yeah. He asks for a private word with this new mad queen, Cersei, and she sends Tommen off to his daily lessons with Grandmaster Pycelle, and today's are on Baylor the Blessed. I loved this little Easter egg because Tommen's plot is very likely to be involved with the High Sparrow moving forward, what with all of the trials and Tyene joining with the Pure Septas. And if you haven't listened to our Maiden Vault episode on Patreon for our Stranger Tier Plus, you definitely need to. We talk about Baylor the Blessed at length, and the gist of who Baylor is, to give you a quick little rundown, is that Aegon III's second son is Baylor, who ruled after Darren. He was super pious. He refused to consummate his marriage to Diana Targaryen, the mother of Daemon Blackfire. He had the Septon dissolve their marriage, put his sisters in a vault where Marjorie and her girlfriends are currently staying at King's Landing, because they were too sexy and they might tempt him. He would fast to rid himself of his lusts, but also attempted to birth dragon eggs by praying over eggs for half a year, which probably what he was really trying to starve out of himself was maybe some magic or some birthing of dragons. Let's be real. He dies by fasting too hard on the 41st day of the fast, of course. So... Who knows what we'll actually get some parallels to in The Winds of Winter, but I have a strong feeling that Tommen's arc will be wrapped up in this. Kind of has to be. Yeah. You know? And I thought that was a great nod that he's going off to lessons about Baylor the Blessed. And religion's just becoming a big thing yeah. within the story. Tayana now leaves asking if she should return for supper, and Cersei's like... Of course, definitely. And JB watches Tina walk away, thinking every step and swing of her hips is a seduction. Hmm. And then Jamie comments on the queer menagerie of people that Cersei is keeping around her now, like the Kettle Blacks, Kyburn, Tina, and says that Tina's informing on you to Marjorie. Uh, you know she's like Marjorie's companion. But Cersei reminds him, you know, she is too clever for his bullshit, or Tina's bullshit in that in fact, I am the one <laughs> playing Marjorie with this sweet serpent of a mirish slut, as Cersei says. George seems to have fun with that, right? Like with Tyena being a sweet serpent, 
We know another sweet mm-hmm. serpent in A Song of Ice and Fire who's Mirish. Sorala, the lace serpent from The Defiance of Duskendale. Hmm. Mm. I thought this was just such an interesting connection because we get the actual mostly full-blown story from a very exhausted maester in Brienne's last chapter right before this. Uh, mm-hmm. She shows up, the maester's like, oh, God, you want to know too. Tells her the whole story. People in the Crownlands largely blame Sorala, the lace serpent, for the defiance of Duskendale, and mostly rightfully. She was the one who was whispering in Dennis Darkland's ear to spurn him into rebellion from the crown. Once Aerys was free, he gave them the dragon's justice, beheading the Darklands, burning Sorala alive, ripping out her tongue and then her female parts. Uh, we'll discuss, like I said, so much more of Mir in general in our Patreon episode, but... All this foreign influence in Westeros from the free cities is all this blatant power grasping, right? We see it in the Lysini Spring. Uh, it's obvious Sorella might have been doing just what we're about to talk about with Tyene and Merryweather. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of similarities. One's definitely setting up the other. Mm-hmm. Cersei says that she's feeding things that she wants Marjorie to know to Tana. Mm-hmm. Some are true, some are false, and then Tana tells her... Maiden Marjorie's moves, and Jamie asks, what do you really know about this woman? Cersei says that Tina Merriweather wants to rise high and have good things for her and her son. She makes herself useful to Cersei. And also, I'm Cersei and I have more power than Marjorie. This is such an intentional connection for the Merriweathers. Uh, this need for Tyena to grasp onto power. The connections we're seeing between Ares and Cersei. If you recall, Taina is married to Orton Merriweather. Orton's father was the son of Owen Merriweather, who went into exile in Mir after ineffectively being Aerys II's Hand of the King. Aerys suspected Owen was plotting against him. He stripped him of lands and titles and exiled him, replacing him with John Connington, and eventually Robert forgives this family and gives some of the lands and titles back to Orton when he comes back with his mirish wife. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. There's this thing that Cersei thinks about also, where she feels like all mothers are the same in what they want for their children, and kind of projects that on Tana, and I'm kind of like, I don't know. I think this kind of speaks to part of the dysfunction in Cersei herself, but also her perceptions of Jamie now. In that, I mean, like, okay, the way that Cersei perceives gender lines in Westeros, I don't think is that uncommon, right? The way that she thinks of it is very much how many in Westeros do, and I think that's a big part of her own internalized misogyny, and it's kind of shown in her thinking, yeah, all mothers are the same. Uh, when I feel that A Song of Ice and Fire deliberately and strongly makes a case for how, no, they are not all the same through all the different facets of motherhood that we explore from a lot of these characters. But then again, of course, that makes sense that Cersei thinks this because she also thinks that men, mm. that of men too, which is why she uses the same strategies on them all the time. She tries it on Ned and she's confused also like about Jamie no longer meeting her own ideas of what masculinity is. Right. Why don't they want it? Confused. <sighs> well, Cersei is constantly learning some information in this book and she actually conveys and boasts some of this information over to Jamie. She learns that Olena kept a chest of pre-conquest gardener coins in her wheelhouse to pay tradesmen 
who named golden prices. Basically, Olenna's cheap because Gardner Gold is half the size of a gold dragon. None of them would complain because she's a little old lady, right? So good for her. It's called a hustle. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> they argue about the use of Kevin, Jamie and Cersei. Jamie says Kevin Lannister could be more useful and Cersei argues otherwise. Jamie thinks he'd be great to use against Lord Stannis in the North with his experience, but Cersei already has the North wrapped up in Roose Bolton's hands. Kevin will be worth more than Lancel, she says, as they already have Davin and Damien, name dropped earlier in the West. Jamie's like, uh, I still think you should name Kevin Hand, and he's like, hmm, let's think about who else we can name as Hand. She then name drops Orton Merriweather, and Jamie's like, oh, his grandpa really sucked at his job, so is this because she's your friend? Cersei responds like, no, she governs the realm. And Jamie thinks internally, seven, save us all you do. His sister liked to think of herself as Lord Tywin with teats, but she was wrong. Their father had been as relentless and implacable as a glacier, where Cersei was all wildfire, especially when thwarted. She'd been giddy as a maiden when she learned that Stannis had abandoned Dragonstone, certain that he had finally given up the fight and sailed away to exile. When word came down from the north that he had turned up again at the wall, her fury had been fearful to behold. She does not lack for wits, but she has no judgment and no patience. So, yes, but also, to be, to be fair... When Jamie's like, how the fuck is the North going to be in Lord Roos Bolton's hands? Cersei's like, it's fine. His bastard son's going to take care of it. <laughs> and, you know, she wasn't wrong. They did, they did in fact, figure out how to get uh, Roos Bolton through both Kaelin. And uh, I, I'm also realizing right now that Cersei has not told Jamie what the terms are that Kevin gave her for him mm -hmm. to be hand. She hasn't. Jamie has no clue what's coming there. And I love this line. She had been giddy as a maiden when she learned Stannis a man in Dragonstone. It reminds me of Joffrey and how Joffrey was reacting like when the Starks were killed. When he was all excited and all like, oh, a drought at the wedding. Waving it in the air, right? Yeah. Interesting. Very much so wonder where he learned that one from. Jamie reiterates that Cersei needs a strong hand to help rule, but she argues only a weak ruler, like Robert or Ares, needs strong hands. Jamie once more reminds her Ares needed Tywin, and she comments that, well, maybe I'll choose Lord Holline, the pyromancer. XOXO, no thanks. Uh, there's this classic Jamie aside, though, here, where Cersei's like, he would be our first pyromancer hand, and Jamie's like, true, I killed the last one. <laughs> and in his head. Uh, also, I think that Jaharis and Septon Barth, right, are a strong counter-argument to, but what if we had a strong hand and a strong king? Yeah, that's true. Anyway. We've seen lots of that butted heads. The conversation slowly drift marks over to Orane oh. Waters, the master ships. Oh. And Cersei's like, oh, who's been informing on me to you, Jamie? Cersei explains Orain has experience in ships, he's been on them half his life, and Jamie's like, he's only been riding for 20 years, tops, and Cersei's like, no, 22 years, tops. Uh, she's sick of old wrinkled assholes, she tells him, but he realizes maybe that's literal, and thinks Lancel and Osmond Kettleblack and Moonboy. Orain Waters is like 21, 22 years old. Yeah, I don't think I realize that. 
It's very young. That's like Rhaegar with a butt chin right before the rebellion started. Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't leave anything like that in the hands of 21-year-old me. Gonna be real. Yeah, me either. The production of a whole navy? Absolutely not. You can barely that produce an island in Animal Crossing. Don't attack me. I'm just kidding. I love you. I am struggling. I am struggling. What do I do with like three-fourths of my island? I'll come over and console like, for about 20,000 bells. I had an idea as I was falling asleep last night, and so I'm going to see if I can try and execute that, but it seems like a lot of work. Hmm. If only my pockets are bigger. Jamie recommends, what about Paxter Redwine? But Cersei refuses to hire a Reachman on her council, which is quite counter to the strategy, right? That, uh... John, Aaron, and Robert had when wedding Stannis to the Florence. <laughs> Jamie finally loses it, telling her that she's making shitty choices with Orin Waters, Haline, and Kyburn especially. Kyburn has made himself most useful to me, and he is loyal, which is more than I can say of mine own kin. The crows will feast upon us if you all go on this way, sweet sister. Cersei, listen to yourself. You're seeing dwarfs in every shadow and making foes of friends. Uncle Kevon is not your enemy. I am not your enemy. Her face twisted in fury. I begged you for your help. I went down on my knees to you and you refused me. My vows. Did not stop you from slaying Ares. Words are wind. You could have had me, but you chose a cloak instead. Get out. Sister. Get out, I said. I'm sick of looking at that ugly stump of yours. Get out. To speed him on his way, she heaved her wine cup at his head. She missed, but Jamie took the hint. Yeah, uh, I think it's kind of funny here where she's like, you chose a cloak instead. I'm like, Cersei, you told him to do this! This was your choice, Cersei! <laughs> this was your plan. <sighs> she's just like floating from plan to plan as they each fail and like jumping off of it to the next one. You know, like, oh, saving my asshole. Here I am. <sighs> yeah, it's spanning quite a few chapters, but I think George is doing a great job of showing like a breaking down relationship, right? A breakup. Yeah. And I think he's having fun this while doing it. This is very much it. that. That sick fuck. He's having a sure. blast. I, I do. With uh, Especially with Jamie being like, Uncle Kevin's not your enemy. I am not your enemy. That was emotional, right? Like, I'm not your enemy. Yeah. Cersei, like, don't you get it? And of course, she does get it. And that's the problem. There's this transition between this section Right, like it ends so emotional like that, and Cersei throws the wine glass at him, and the next passage starts. And I just think it's kind of emotional as well. Evenfall found him sitting alone in the common room of White Sword Tower with a cup of Dornish red and the white book. Just that transition between him leaving Cersei, that harsh air between them, and then suddenly the cut of the next passage, starting with Evenfall. So I know this is not the case, but I think it would be kind of funny if the cup that he's drinking the Dornish Red out of is the same one that Cersei threw at him. I mean, I hope so. Reusable king, you know? Right. I think that would be like a great cherry on top at the end of a fight. Reduce, reuse, recycle king. (sighs) Pretty much. So Jamie's not alone. Loris enters the tower. He hangs his accessories up right next to Jamie's, and Jamie compliments him on his riding earlier in the yard. Loris doesn't really answer very modestly. He's like, I know. Loris is then like, you know, Renly always said that books, gestures at White Book, are for maesters. 
I kind of feel like Renly saying this is maybe something that like he heard or learned from Robert. Oh yeah. Especially considering that Joffrey cites that Robert didn't have time for books at all, and Jamie is actually like, though. Jamie's like, this isn't like regular books. It's the book for us, Loras, for our weird ass motherfucking role in life. Uh, it's the history of the White Cloak. Loras is like, I've glanced at it, but. He says he prefers picture books, and then he goes on to talk about how fucking Renly had the Kama Sutra in full color, painted, like, full scale. No, I'm just kidding, but he did. He was like, Renly had some drawing, some books with drawings that turned a septum blind, is the exact quote. And Loris is like, I would rather look at picture books. (laughs) And Jamie's like, okay. Uh, Jamie says, you should know the histories of these men. And Loris is like, well, I do know them. And he starts naming off men. He's like, Eamon, Ryum, Greatheart, who's made up. It's only a reference. Uh, and Barristan. And Jamie then finishes his sentence. It's like this great back and forth. And he's like, Gwen Corbray, Alan Connington, who's also made up, world building. Uh, the Demon of Derry, made up, world building. Lucamore Strong. And Loris comes back at him and he's amused. He comments on Lucamore Strong, Lucamore the Lusty's gelding. And I'm very interested in how George wrote this and then went on to write uh, bits for The World of Ice and Fire or had some bits already written and then, of course, Fire and Blood. He initially puts Lucamore the Lusty in Feast. This is Lucamore Strong's very first appearance. The next mention Lucamore gets is in Fire and Blood, though, where his story's expanded. And there's a great parallel because Lucamore took three wives. The three wives gave him different kids each of the kids that Lucamore Strong has with each wife, there are three wives, have a different brand, right? You have the rivers from the Riverlands, the storms from the Stormlands, and the waters from the Crownlands. And depending on where the wife was sent after the whole mess, that was what their kid was. So that number three is strong. It's a bold reference. And we know of another man of the city guard, not the king's guard, who was a strong, like Lucamore Strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rhaenyra's unsaid baby daddy, Harwin Breakbones, who also had three bastards. Right? Three bastards. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you flash forward to Jamie Lannister, the father of three bastards. So there's something going on with this number of three, something going on with how strong. And I think we're going to see more of it as we move forward because Jamie quizzes him again. He says, okay, what about Terence Toyne? And Loris responds, Terence Toyne bedded the king's mistress and died screaming. Men who wear the white breeches should keep them laced. Terence was found abed with Aegon IV's mistress, Bethany Bracken. They proclaimed their love after being caught, and Aegon IV has Terence Toyne dismembered bit by bit, making Bethany watch until he then has her killed too. His brothers try to avenge him, but are cut down by even the Dragon Knight in the process, and then House Toyne is basically ended. It makes me wonder if there's almost a little bit of that whole Kettle Black kind of feeling going on here. Being found as part of Cersei's conspiracies, etc. There's something more interesting in Guile's Grey Cloak, who's called a traitor. We don't really get full information on him. However, there is a Giles, who was a Kingsguard in history. Giles Belgrave. Cregan had him executed. Cregan Stark in the Hour of the Wolf. 
Of course, a parallel here is that Giles Belgrave was Kingsguard on duty when Aegon II was poisoned. So it's very, very strongly disputed whether or not he was the poisoner or involved, but he's kind of our Boros Blount in a way, right? Hmm. It is. We get some talk about Orville the open-handed, who was a coward. No information on him. He's made up for world building. But then Loras begins to fail the test because he doesn't really recognize some of the obscure names that Jamie pulls out. And some of these are major throwaways, absolutely. But there are small characters George has scattered throughout these histories and stories now that could very well be related. We get Long Tom Costain, who was a Kingsguard for 60 years, and there's not a lot of information on him unless you look at Tommen Costain, who was a Knight of Costain during the Hedge Knight. We see him very briefly in the Hedge Knight. There's Donald of Duskendale, another man from the Hedge Knight, escorting the Targaryen crew into the Ashford Tourney. Addison Hill, he was one of the very first Knights of the Kingsguard. Visenya chose him, and he rose to Lord Commander. The White Owl, Michael Mertens, no backstory. Jeffrey Norcross, never yield, no real backstory. Red Robert Flowers, no real backstory. And Rollin Darkland, the youngest to serve until Jamie, who died within an hour of donning the cloak. <laughs> that's unfortunate. And that's it. That's literally the information on him. It's pretty good trivia. We've discussed in the past that as Jamie had you know, at first felt unworthy or daunted sitting in that really well-made chair. <laughs> Might I emphasize once more that has lasted a long-ass time through all of these fucking people that JB has mentioned, right? Perhaps not all of the Kingsguard were so gallant. We went through some of those names. Many of them were just as flawed as he was. I mean, they didn't, like, fail their entire job of killing the king that they were supposed to protect. But, but many of them, of course, were also very flawed, as, as we've pointed out. And and I think that makes it worth it that Jamie's calling all of this out to Loris, which I think fits in very nicely with Jamie remembering the history a moment ago of a bunch of the different hands of the king. And just as Jamie's story is again against the backdrop of Rian and Circe's, one of the POVs that we also get at the beginning of A Feast for Crows is Ari's Oakheart, also very flawed, also breaking his vows. Gonna die in a moment. In a second, though, Loris is going to say that, like, many deserve to be forgotten, heroes are remembered, and Jamie's like, yeah, uh, both the heroes and the worst, like, the best and the worst get fucking remembered, right? And again, I just can't help but think once more of the Night's Watch, where many of the best members of the Night's Watch go forgotten, right? Like, besides us and the reader, like, the readers and John, who else is gonna fucking give a shit about Donald Noy yeah. or Corn Halfhand? They're not gonna be remembered in songs. No one's gonna write songs about Cotter Pike or Yorin or Stone Snake that only John knows is out there. Like, Jamie is, for some reason, obvious reasons, in my opinion, uh, trying to father Loris as he sees himself reflected in Loris and teach him that thing that our good friend poor Quentin is always saying about how men's lives have meaning <laughs> and you know it, it's holding true right even when the songs are not sung about them especially when as Jamie has experienced and knows oftentimes those songs are very wrong a lot of brave men have worn the white cloak most have been forgotten most deserve to be forgotten. The heroes will always be remembered. The best. The best and the worst. So one of us is like to live in song. And a few who were a bit of both, like him. He thought the page he had been reading. Who? Sir Loris craned his neck around a sea. 
Ten black pellets on a scarlet field. I do not know these arms. They belong to Kristen Cole, who served the first Viserys and the second Aegon. Jamie closed the white book. They called him Kingmaker. Oh my god. <sighs> it's a good ending. It's a really strong Tells you a ending. lot about this story. They called him uh, Kingmaker. And what to expect. Whatever he chose. Pretty much. I, I think it's so funny, this part. It sounds to me like Jamie's a giant fucking nerd. Like, he's over here like, Loris, don't you know all these obscure characters? You're gonna call yourself a Kingsguard and you don't know this person and this character? Like, Jamie, who would expect someone to know all of that? What kind of person would ever do that and just learn all of these obscure names and characters and what they mean? Hmm. Who does that? Interesting. <laughs> me. Jamie. Who has pulled apart every single one of those characters Jamie mentioned. Interesting, Eliada. I'd love for you to talk about it more. Oh, that is the point. That is the point that I'm making. Am I the nerd? Is it me? Jamie's Jamie's one of us. Are you saying that? Say. I don't even like him. Listen, I want to talk about Kristen Cole. We talked about the Kettleblacks having kind of some toying strong imagery earlier. Uh, no one called Joe Magician, who you might remember from our Jon Snow chapters. Uh, he would love this conversation. But I think George is playing with this kind of sandbox format for this male character, especially when you bring in this context about Kristen Cole versus Harwin Strong and Jamie Lannister versus the Kettleblocks. So if you haven't read Fire and Blood, I'm really not exaggerating this at all. I want to tell you about Mushroom, who is a fool who gives us a story in Fire and Blood. I know I am hyperbolic as a person. You all know I'm hyperbolic as a person. You've heard us. Uh, and the points of the story that I'm making right now are not hyperbolic. Like, this is sensible, according to Mushroom. But Mushroom claimed that Rhaenyra Targaryen loved Kristen Cole, but he was too true a knight, too pure to do anything with her. She went to her uncle Damon for lovemaking lessons, according to Mushroom, when he returned from the Narrow Sea. She went to bring these lovemaking lessons to Kristen, and he spurned her angrily. When Rhaenyra was made to marry Laner Valerian, Septon Eustace spins this tale. Sir Kristen Cole slipped into the princess's bedchamber to confess his love for her. He told Rhaenyra he had a ship waiting on the bay and begged her to flee with him across the narrow sea. They'd be wed in Tyrosh or Old Volantis, where her father's writ did not run, and no one would care that Sir Christian had betrayed his vows as a member of the Kingsguard. But Rhaenyra refused him. If he could set aside his Kingsguard vows, why would marriage vows mean any more to him? Mushroom tells us a little different of a tale. In his version, it was Rhaenyra who went to Sir Christian, not him to her. She found him alone. In White Sword Tower, barred the door, slipped off her cloak to reveal her nakedness underneath. I saved my maidenhead for you, she told him. Take it now as proof of my love. It will mean little and less to my betrothed. Perhaps when he learns I am not chaste, he will refuse me. Yet for all her beauty, her entreaties fell on deaf ears, for Sir Christian was a man of honor and true to his vows. Scorned and furious, the princess donned her cloak and swept out into the night where she chanced to encounter Sir Harwin Strong, returning from a night of revelry in the stews of the city. Anyway, there's attorney. Kristen's now giving his favor to the king's wife, Alison Hightower, instead of the king's daughter. 
reminder, green is the color here to remember. And he breaks Breakbones. It's literally when he gets his name. Harwin Strong's collarbone in the tourney. And then Laner, Rhaenyra's husband, uh, his boyfriend, Joffrey Lawnmouth, is killed by Kristen. So that's how you know it's war. Kristen's like, fuck you, Rhaenyra. Fuck you forever. And uh, we get a couple different lines, too. This is before King Viserys died. King Viserys was most wroth as well. A joyous celebration had become the occasion of grief and recrimination. It was said that Alicent did not share his displeasure, however. Soon after, she asked Sir Kristen Cole be made her personal protector. The coolness between the king's wife and the king's daughter was plain for all to see. Even envoys from the free cities made note of it in letters sent back to Pentos, Bravos, and Old Volantis, which, as you and I know, there are probably letters right now in the story flying to Pentos, Bravos, and Old Volantis from Varys. Uh, I don't I don't think this is a perfect mm-hmm. parallel, of course. I see a lot of Cersei and Rhaenyra going forward, but I also see a lot of Daenerys in her as well. Or vice versa, Rhaenyra and Daenerys, mm-hmm. however you want to say it. But the idea that publicly people think Jaime is being spurned by Cersei, while he's finally almost making his own choice, is interesting. The mushroom rendition of what we just saw would have been Cersei came to the White Sword Tower begging in her village maiden outfit, taking out his dick, trying to seduce him, telling her no. Oh, wait, that did happen, though, right? Like, that did just happen. That happened, happen. like, a few chapters ago, yeah. Yeah, the sources differ on what happened next for Kristen, but I do think Septon Eustace's takes are kind of middle of the road. Uh, I think maybe add two or three dashes of Mushroom's takes to Septon Eustace's takes and we'll be closer to true. Kristen Cole is said to have told the council at the time of Viserys' death if we seat a bastard on the throne, they'll turn the Red Keep into a brothel. No man's daughter will be safe, nor man's wife, even the boys. We know what Laner was, yada yada, homophobia. And then it said that Kristen cut down the only opposer against them in crowning Aegon II, which was Lyman Beesbury. Mushroom agrees on this death. He doesn't agree on the manner, but he agrees that he did die during this. Uh, Kristen is sent along with other men to spread the word on foot about the new king, Aegon II, in the morning, because they didn't want to send ravens in case they were intercepted. He comes to find Aegon. He's not there. Helena, my angel, is there. She dies later. It's sad. Anyways, uh, he goes to actually find Aegon with his paramour, and Eustace gives us this account back and forth. My sister is the heir, not me, he says in Eustace's account. What sort of brother steals his sister's birthright? Only when Sir Kristen convinced him that the princess must surely execute him and his brothers, should she don the crown, did Aegon waver. Whilst any true-born Targaryen yet lives, no strong can ever hope to sit the Iron Throne, Cole said. Rhaenyra has no choice but to take your heads if she wishes her bastards to rule after her. It was this and only this that persuaded Aegon to accept the crown that the small council offered him, insists our gentle Septon. No, doesn't match completely with Jamie here on out that we know of. I think the idea of Jamie's trying to decide what his legacy is in spurning Cersei himself, refusing her in his white sword tower and in her solar, refusing to be her hand, it's very reminiscent of Rhaenyra and Kristen's debacle. We won't ever know what happened, right? Because damn it, George, he left it vague on purpose. But I think we could draw some very interesting hard parallels here between Jamie and Cersei and Kristen and Rhaenyra. 
Definitely. And especially because one of these plots, right, regarding kingmakers is happening to one of their children. Yes. Who's being made a pawn in someone else's kingmaker, queenmaker, hmm. in fact, plot. So it's interesting that Jamie's thinking of this right now. This is his chance to shape history. He's been a king slayer. He's been a king maker. He literally made kings also. That was clearing yes. the way for Tywin to choose whoever they wanted. That's true. And then he had sex and yep. made kings. Literally with his Maybe penis. Queens. Yep. Yep. With <sighs> his penis. He did that. <laughs> well. I know that like I've been very sympathetic towards Jamie lately. I would like to comment on that. I want everyone to pat me on the back for it and be like, Chloe, we're so proud of you. I didn't think you were going to come this far. I cried once and it wasn't even really about him in the end. So I digress. It really was though. I just don't want everyone to think it's going to get better for me from here. Like I, I'm not proud of what Jamie does in this book necessarily. Like he, he tries, he doesn't know what he's doing either, but hmm. Yeah, I think he's he's trying, and I think that's something that's interesting to explore. George is wondering that, like, whether trying is enough or not. That's something that we would have seen put up against one another, right? Had Jamie and Theon's chapters been in the same book. Yeah, that would have been something that I think to George was trying to put up against one another, but... It makes me wonder if their deaths will come up near each other at all. Maybe not. Maybe. <laughs> They're both so tied in with Bran, so, yeah. That's very true. That's a great yes. point. Well, that's Jamie too, baby. We did it. Episode 90. Ten more. But maybe maybe you want to stay tuned for episode 91. You can keep track of when that comes out by subscribing to us on social media. As we said earlier up at the top of this episode, you can find us at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter. Maybe you have something to say that... Uh, we could read it on one of these episodes at some point in time uh, via email or DM, girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Make sure you're subscribed to us on all of the podcasting platforms that you might have on your phone, on your computer, wherever you listen to podcasts. Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Acast, Stitcher, you name it, we're there. Subscribe to us. And of course, we have a Patreon episode this month. Uh, this month, it's about A Song of Ice and Fire. We are going to talk about Mir, and we're going to dig in a little bit more about Tana Merriweather, whom we touched on this episode, but we'll talk about more in depth. We have chosen Mir, the free city, because it has three letters. It has the letters M and Y, just like this month, (laughs) May. I am excited, besides the three-letter theory, I'm excited to continue our free cities series uh, we had a really good time talking about Tyrosh last time. I, I, I'm surprised by that. We somehow loved it. So I think Mir can only get better. I'm excited to talk about it with you, Eliana. Yes, and that episode's going to come out for people five for patrons five dollars and up. Yes, in the stranger tier. And if you aren't already following us on Patreon, check it out at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where for our stranger tier of patrons, we do a special episode every month, whether it's a song of ice and fire or whether it is his dark materials. As always, it has been a joy to speak about a song of ice and fire about Jamie Lannister with you all. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana.
She says it sarcastically, but she had a lot to say this episode. I wasn't being sarcastic. No, I was being truthful. I love you guys so much. I didn't so realize. Much. I thought you were. I'll never be sarcastic. Goodbye. <laughs> okay, goodbye. Bye, guys.